0: Welcome to the Change Lives, Changing Lives podcast, a ministry of Locust Hill Baptist Church in Travelers Rest, South Carolina. My name is Michael Hodge, Senior Pastor at Locust Hill. At Locust Hill, we celebrate the change that God alone could bring in our lives, And we also recognize the calling to share that good news with others. Lives changed by Christ, changing lives by Christ. We welcome you to this podcast where we want to equip you to live in the reality of a life changed by Christ. Disciple making is at the core of a church's calling. And we want to take advantage of every resource we can to encourage you today. We invite you to join us for a service, Sundays at 10.15 a.m., Wednesdays, 6.30 p.m. Our church is located at 5534 Locust Hill Road in Travelers Rest, South Carolina. Our website is locusthillchurch.org.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. We're grateful to be back together as a staff. Though the recordings have kept on going, we had to take a break as a staff last week as Will and I were in class. All the assignments are done, right Will? <laughs> Still lots to go, but had a great week, so great to be back around the table together as a staff, and we appreciate Jason organizing our discussion of and Lowly, he's been getting our questions together each week, helping us to kind of walk through just pieces of the chapter, and I hope the reflections we've had have been encouraging to folks. Our themes in this episode are going to be the beauty of the heart of Christ. And the emotional life of Christ. And so as we dive into this chapter, the background of this chapter takes me back to summer 1740. Just a few summers ago. (laughs) So Jonathan Edwards, he had the assignment to lead the children's sermon in his church. So if you're not familiar with Jonathan Edwards, he was senior pastor in the Massachusetts area in the 1700s. Early leader of the First Great Awakening By age 14, he was reading philosophy books. By age 18, he was already pastoring his first church. He wrote around 17 volumes of writings. His most famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He was a fiery evangelistic preacher, and on this particular Sunday, his task, do the children's sermon. You can just imagine (laughs) what What the children's sermon would be like with Jonathan Edwards. But in the sermon, it was this theme, the beauty of the heart of Christ. So that's our topic in this chapter, focusing on some of those words of Jonathan Edwards as he preached a children's sermon with this theme. So, Will, we'll start out with you. What's the distinct contribution that Jonathan Edwards makes to how we should think about the heart of Christ?
2: Well, um, if you look on page 96, the, just that very first sentence in the quote there, it says, There is no love so great and so wonderful as that which is in the heart of Christ. Um, And so you think the man who wrote Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and now he's talking about the love, you know, this in Christ's heart. It gets kind of wonky, you know what I'm saying? Like you feel like it's not quite, you know, where it needs to be. And you're like, how "How in the world is this going on? But at the same time, it opens up the door for the rest of this chapter where we get to look at the loveliness of Jesus' heart. Um, and so with that, I think his main call to the kids, um, if I'm not mistaken, is a kid, the children ought to love the Lord Jesus Christ above all things in the world. And so you see the heart of Christ, the loveliness of his heart, and it leads not just children, but all people to love the Lord Jesus above all things in the world.
1: Yeah, I just got to bring our audience in. There was a challenge before we started to get the word wonky into the recording, and we will got it in in the first question. Yeah. So you never know what you're going to hear with man. <laughs> but this is an idea that came up in some of the readings we had for our class, and it was a picture of the beatific vision. And I thought, well, we don't talk about the beatific vision very often, but it's typically more of a Catholic teaching but essentially, it's just that our eyes are focused on Christ. Probably uh, John Piper's writings of Christian hedonism, of beholding the, the beauty of Christ, everything, all of our passion, our focus, enjoying him forever. And so as we think about that idea of the beauty of Christ, that's not something we talk about a lot, but being captured by who he is. Um, the Tracy, I want to pull you in. The quote here is, human beings are created with a built-in pull toward beauty. Jonathan Edwards understood this deeply and saw that this magnetic pull toward beauty also occurs in spiritual things. Do you think much in terms of beauty when you think of God? Think of God or Christ? That's a question to think about. Does that image come to mind as we think about him?
3: Um, for me, I think in a couple of different ways. First, and just the way he loves us unconditionally, how he wants the best for us, and the sacrifices he made for us, um, so that I think his heart's like the ultimate example of beauty as well, spiritually, and then in everything we get to enjoy here on earth, um, being created by him and truly like a reflection of him, even down to us, like just all that to me is just examples of beauty from him.
4: You know, in our putting these questions together every week, is, sometimes it's sometimes it's it's you know you got to pull some out, you got to. Find the question, uh, sometimes Orland just gives it to you. Mm-hmm. And uh, this, this next question really comes directly from the book. Um, the quote that Orland gives on page 97 is In our churches today, we often refer to the glory of God and the glory of Christ. And so, Amanda, would love to hear from you. What is it about God's glory that draws us in and causes us to conquer our sins? And make us radiant people.
3: So God's glory absolutely draws me in when I see or think about his power, his authority, his vastness, or his greatness. But it is his goodness that is overwhelming to me. When I look at the cross and see God dying for me and my sins, I am broken, but by his love, I am healed, restored, and moved to share his love with others.
1: In this section, what really stood out to me, I mean, this is really a theology question, spirituality, because you're looking at the glory of God, the glory of Christ. Um, I think we don't consider our beliefs and how they inform our practice enough. So much in modern Christianity is about experience, and our experience in a worship service, and we're always looking at replicating an experience. But for our folks that are involved in Bible study, they're growing in their faith on their own at home, their worship is so much more vibrant. So if I come in just looking for an experience, then all the weight is on Andy as you lead, or Will as you're leading a prayer time. It's all about us manufacturing an experience. But my beliefs, if I'm diving in and growing deeper in my faith, that's informing how I worship. That's why I appreciate this book, because this is kind of a, a difficult book in some ways because he's using older resources, But it's a book that's challenging our beliefs in this chapter about the heart of Christ. What do we believe about his heart, and then how does that impact how we worship? And so uh, I'm going to pass to you with this question then, pulling a quote from page 99. So let the heart of Jesus be something that is not only gentle toward you, but lovely to you. In other words, Orland says, romance the heart of Jesus. Are you romancing the heart of Christ? What does that look like? What does it mean? So Jason, I'll let you kind of reply to that.
4: Well, Orland says, what does it mean to romance the heart of Christ? He says, ponder him through his heart. Allow yourself to be allured." And in our life group right now, we're studying the book of Mark. And in talking about how Jesus spent time with God. Mark one thirty-five says, Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went off to a solitary place where he prayed. And, you know, just in thinking about our lives today and how wonky they are, um, in order for that to happen, in order for us to be able to spend time with God, we've got to slow down. We've got to create space for uninterrupted, undiluted time where we can allow ourselves Just simply to be overcome, overwhelmed by the presence of Jesus. Mm -hmm. That's what draws us to him. That's what romances him, his heart, um, what he has done for us, what he continues to do for us. That's what makes him alluring. That's what should make him alluring to us. It should make us desire his continued presence more in our lives. No matter what we're going through. I love what, um, what Orland says at the bottom of page 99 when he says... When you look at the glorious older saints in your church, how did they how do you think they got there? Mm-hmm. Sound doctrine? Yeah. Resolute obedience? Without a doubt. Suffering without becoming cynical? For sure. But he says this, but maybe another reason, maybe the deepest reason is that they have over time been won over in their deepest affections to a gentle savior. And that, to me, about when you talk about romancing Jesus, it's literally about seeing his heart, understanding his heart from his point of view, not from ours. Yeah.
1: Well, by the time this will play, this episode will play, Will and I will have most likely have completed an assignment that our class has, and here's the task: maybe more challenging for you, Will, than me. I don't know. We'll see. Okay. Solitude for four hours. Mm. We also, we also <laughs> there saying, no, no. but it's a spiritual formation class yeah. and that's one of the assignments during this month that we have to set aside four hours to just you, you can journal you can read the words i'm sorry consecutive hours consecutive hours yeah, too so, hours,
2: yeah. so will
1: never stops uh, if you know will he's going all the time so just that assignment but when we think about just knowing his heart uh, when you were just answering that that's what stood out to me i got to spend time with him mm-hmm. and Mark we've seen that in our study already that retreat right. he, Jesus would retreat away from the crowd in order to spend time with the Father and in our Wednesday night series walking through Francoise the call that's been a repeated emphasis that we have to he called into himself so first of all that abiding relationship then he sent them out
4: so. well and you know you, t- you mentioned the word solitude you know, we can't consider time with Jesus as solitary confinement. Ooh. It is solitude. And a lot of times that's difficult for people. It, it is hard. It's restricting. Um, and that kind of takes us, jumps us into chapter 11, because we talk about the emotional life of Christ. That's the title of the chapter. Uh, John 11, 33 is the scripture verse that Orland highlights when it says, When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Uh, Orland starts off the chapter with this quote, one of the doctrines in the area of Christology that is difficult for some Christians to fully grasp is the permanent humanity of Christ. And so Michael, I'd love for you to answer this question for us and then even for our audience is Jesus a human right now? What is the implication of this for how we are to understand Christ's heart?
1: I think it's a complex idea for us to understand because it's beyond our experience. We know humanity, and that's all we know. We won't know divinity. That's heresy. That's Mormonism. We're not going to be gods. So we can only understand what it means to be human. And so here's this... Wedding in scripture of fully God, fully man. And then you ask the question here, is he human right now? Well, Philippians 2 gives the picture of his humanity, having this mind among ourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on the cross. So we see that picture of him taking on flesh, and what we observe in the resurrection story is he still had a flesh and bone body, and the recognition of the disciples, his resurrection body, still retained every aspect of his physical body. And so why does it matter then if he is still fully human? Well, it's a reminder that Christ is eternal mm-hmm. our representative. Mm-hmm. He took on flesh. So the Chalcedonian Creed says Truly God, truly man. And so the same Jesus who paid the penalty for our sin is the same Jesus who is now interceding on our behalf. We talked about that in a previous chapter, that he's our advocate, Mm -hmm. that he is going before the Father continually. And so he is uh, representing us, uh, the perfect sacrifice for our sins and still perfectly advocating for us. Fully God, fully man, he still retains his humanity. And so tied in with that, I'll pass it over to you, Katina, let you clean up what I just shared a little bit. <laughs> so whatever it means to be human, Jesus was and is, and emotions are an essential part of being human. Our emotions are diseased by the fall, but emotions are not themselves a result of the fall. Jesus experienced a full range of emotions that we do. What do you think of Jesus' emotions? What story from his life comes to mind? Well...
3: There's tons that I like in the Bible, but the one that just kind of really came out, comes to me and really just makes me feel so loved by God is that Jesus rejoiced in saving people. It's Luke 15, 5-6 when he tells the parable of the lost sheep. Um, The shepherd found his wayward lamb that had wandered from the flock. He carried it home and on his shoulders rejoicing. He called together his friends and said, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, which was lost. Jesus is the good shepherd. And this narrative, therefore, reflects the Savior's emotions when the lost return to the fold. He loves us so much that even if I had been the only sinner, he would have died on the cross for me. So that love is just, I guess,
4: one of the emotions and how he rejoices when we are saved. You know, because of that love, we really get a picture of Jesus' compassion. And, um, one of the references that, uh, that Orland uses is B.B. Warfield, who was a great Princeton theologian. And I think he wrote a, a famous essay called On the Emotional Life of Our Lord. And Andy, you know, he, B.B. Warfield said that of Jesus, he said, compassion and indignation rise together in his soul. When you think about that quote, What is the connection between Christ's compassion and his anger? And are these two really at odds?
5: And that that they actually come together, you know, even as a child when I was growing up, you see that wonderful picture of him with the children. Mm -hmm. And then you see him also at the temple turning over tables and just completely going in and and just... uh, just really rooting out sin and in, in an angry way, and it seems wonky to us, but it is. Yeah, I did I put that. In. But it is. But they go together. It is perfect that they're together. And Warfield says it's a matter of moral perfection, not only to distinguish between good and evil, but to be positively drawn toward one and repelled by the other. He says it would be impossible, therefore, for a moral being to stand in the presence of perceived wrong and be indifferent and unmoved. And he also uses a, a logic progression here. He says, moral goodness revolts with indignant anger against evil. Jesus was the epitome of moral goodness, so he was morally perfect. And then the conclusion would be, Jesus revolted against evil with indignant anger more deeply than anyone because he was morally perfect. And I think about how someone can have great compassion but yet have the right type of anger. Uh, It's difficult for me to understand because often my anger comes when my selfishness has not been satisfied Uh or when others have not placed my convenience in the highest priority. And so that's a lot of times when my anger comes. But if you think about it, uh, Katina, you've been a teacher, and Jason, your wife's a teacher, and Will, your wife's a teacher, and all of us have taught at one point in time. There is nothing more beautiful than to see the love of a parent for their child, but there's nothing more terrifying than to see a parent coming into the school when they feel like their child <laughs> has been nice. has been treated badly. You know, and uh, so you can see a real picture there. Now, sometimes the parents are wrong, okay, uh, but you can see that picture of okay, I can re I can react with the right type of anger at something that is morally wrong, but I can still have great compassion. You
1: know? So tied in with that, continue with B.B. Warfield. Will we'll, I pull you in? It says, What John's gospel does for us is to uncover for us the heart of Jesus as he wins for us our salvation, not in cold unconcern, but in flaming wrath against the foe. Jesus smites on our behalf. So how does Jesus' righteous wrath bring you confidence of his compassion?
2: Um, so I think one of the most noted things in Scripture is how Strong God's wrath is, um, and so knowing how strong God's wrath is, and that wrath and compassion um, they rise and fall together. I think one of the things that goes off what Andy was saying the right anger um, is we got to look at what his anger was directed toward. And on the bottom of one eleven, it says, this it says he hates with righteous, righteous hatred all that plagues you." And so that's what his hatred, that's what his anger is directed toward. And so no wonder he was in there flipping tables, no wonder, you know, even, I love the, the Lazarus thing here and he's just so upset. he's like, Lazarus, come on out. Boom. there he is, the, the, right, the righteous, you know, hatred toward things um, that plague me So I, I think A lot of really good things pulled
1: out, two really good chapters, the beauty of the heart of Christ, the emotional life of Christ. I hope something we've shared stirs some thoughts, leads you to love the Savior all the more. Folks, when we dive into the deeper truths of our faith, it it deeply impacts our worship. And so I would encourage all of our folks that are listening, keep studying the Word, keep growing in your faith because it impacts the way you come and gather with fellow believers. So I just want to say thank you for joining us each week. We look forward to sharing in our next episode, A Tender Friend, chapter 12 in the book. See you then.